This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Want to be sure you always look your best? The Reflections LED Rose Gold Makeup Mirror from Conair makes it easy with all the features you need to groom and apply makeup with precision. Lifetime LED lighting won't ever dim or diminish. No replacement bulbs needed. One-time magnification provides a full view or 10 times magnification for close-up tweezing and details. Designed with a beautiful rose gold finish, the mirror rotates at 360 degrees with a 7.5-inch viewing surface to attend to every feature. Makes a great gift. Go to conair.com for the Reflections LED Rose Gold Makeup mirror now Welcome to the Football Grad Podcast. I'm your host, Manu Vef. And as always, I'm joined by Tim. Tim, how's it going? Everything still good in the West Coast? Everything is great. Uh, happy hello, hello, hello to all the listeners. It's very, very Christmassy in, in, in Vancouver. It's lots of Christmas parties. Uh, people don't really work at all. There's uh, Everyone's giving each other presents, Christmas cards. So it's very, very... And we even had snow yesterday in Vancouver, which is fairly rare. It's not unique, but it doesn't happen every day. Uh, so some people were excited. I wasn't because I had snow for 22 years of my life in Siberia. And I had enough of that. But yeah, yeah I'm very excited for today's pod because we're doing something a little bit different. Yeah, we're doing something very different. Like, it's the winter break in Russia. Yes, it's Christmas. So we'll give ev- all our listeners a special Christmas gift. We're going to remember the 10 best European matches that involved a Soviet or post-Soviet club. Isn't that right, Tim? And we got some really good ones in this one. Exactly. Like me and you have been talking yesterday, we came up with this idea of doing this uh, top 10. But we also want to make a kind of like a side note that it was very hard to pick 10. Mm-hmm. And it's our personal opinion that they are not ranked from 1 to 10. They're just 10 games, which we thought... And I can find probably 20 more games which yeah. were important and interesting. So don't get, don't, don't quote us. This is just our vision for now. Maybe we'll do part two. Who knows? Yeah, and it's also by date. So we're actually going to start all the way back in 1981. And people will say, oh, what about that 1976 game that involved <clears throat> Dynamo Kiev? Well, again, it's a 10, top 10 list and not every game makes it. But I thought we should start with Dynamo Tbilisi against Carl Zeiss Jena. This is an Eastern Bloc classic, isn't it, Tim? Uh, Dynamo Tbilisi beat Carl Zeiss Jena 2-1 in the 1981 European Cup Winners' Cup. I love that competition. So sad that it's gone. Um, this was played at the Rheinstadion in Düsseldorf, Tim, and not a great attendance of only 4,750 people on the stands, probably because both countries weren't able to send very many fans. <laughs> this is the time of the East-West divide, time of communism, the last really big uh, episode of the Cold War, right? 
and you had these two East German, Eastern European sides going at each other. But this is still a significant game, isn't it? Absolutely. That was the second European Cup, which was won for uh, by a Soviet club. I was listening to the uh, highlights, and that was the highlights from the uh, Soviet TV, and they were saying that how legendary the this victory was. And Dynamo uh, Tbilisi back then was one of the top. Soviet clubs, they played beautiful football. Uh, Georgian players are known for their more technical um, kind of play. And uh, they played different, definitely beautiful football. Some, star, some stars of that time were Vladimir Gutsayev, uh, David Kipiani, Vitaly Draselia. All those players, the legendary Alexander Chivadze, who was the captain of the side. All those players were um, uh, very technical. They know how to play with the ball. And uh, the team played very, very, very interesting football for that back then um, uh, but uh, could you please tell me like my question was because when I started getting ready for 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 the spot I didn't know much about Carl Siena could you please tell about this club what what was what kind of level that club was back then oh Carl Siena was the of course the company team of the Carl size um, glass manufacturing lens manufacturer right which if you have a camera today chances are there's a Carl size lens in there um ex except if you paid it somewhere in a black market in thailand maybe then probably not but um this was a good site you know this is this is in the time when teams were made up of local workers and people working in the local industry and east german football has a very similar story to soviet football right tim that it is that it, mm. these are working class teams and Carl Zeiss Jena was that I mean, Jena isn't a big town but this team you know they eliminated the likes of roma valencia Benfica to get to that final, so they were not a pushover side. And I, I, it, East German football only had two really big moments in European football, and this was one of them. The other one was, of course, when Magdeburg won it in the seventies, uh, the European Cup Winners' Cup. But this this was a very good side, and I mean, you look at some of the players that stand out: Krause, for example, um, Schnupphase, the the libero. Um, Eberhard Volkner, Jürgen Raab, you know, these were all good players. You just don't hear very much of them afterwards because East German football kind of fell a little bit on the wayside. But it's the same with the football in, in Georgia, isn't it? That, you know, that was really the big moment and Georgian footballs really suffered from the fall of the Soviet Union. I mean, Dinamo Tbilisi were known as the Uruguayans during the time of the Soviet Union. Yeah, definitely. Like if you look at at the Georgian uh, successes or lack of successes on the European stage, there's pretty much nothing to talk about. Uh, we have, um, you know, uh, and we'll talk more about it. Uh, UEFA Cup uh, victories by Russian clubs, by Ukrainian clubs. Uh, they played in the final, so we can talk about some successes. There's nothing really coming from Georgia, unfortunately. Uh, still, to after even after the Soviet Union broke up, Georgia back on that. Um, um, end of Soviet era, they still produced uh, some great players in the modern time, Kiknadze, uh, there, there was great, lots of players who played in Europe, uh, but at the same time, kind of right now, it's slowing down and slowing down because the state of uh, Georgian football definitely is going down, and in, in terms of producing talent, the Georgians are just not there anymore. Yeah, it's a really sad story. I, I, was, I was in Tbilisi, of course, for my, my PhD research, and the Dynamo Arena is a fantastic stadium at um, you know, I see pictures of the time when they were filling that stadium with 80,000 fans every game. And now they, they're happy if they get 2,000. So, you know, this, this was such a glorious moment. And you see it when you go to Dinamo today, you still see it. They, they still cherish this. There's statues. There's, you can, you can visit the cup when you go to the stadium. So it's, it's such a big 
moment and um i really feel, i'm kind of sad that dinamo tbilisi are not currently in that level but tim sadly we don't have that much time so we need to move on to another amazing post-soviet side of the 1980s and dinamo Ki kiev defeated atletico madrid 3-0 in the european cup winners cup final in 1986 now the 80s were a good time for soviet football towards the end of the 80s the the soviet vishaya liga was actually ranked number one in the uefa 5e coefficient uh, the soviet national team which was basically made up out of this dinamo <laughs> side reached the final yeah. of the 1988 european championships this dinamo side was unreal wasn't it absolutely and uh, people like i've put myself as a Spartak fan on this uh, podcast very, very obviously, and uh, I'm proud of being. But I think Labanovsky was probably the most legendary and the most important coach, at, maybe at least in the post-war sign, but maybe in the history of whole post-Soviet or Soviet um, football. Even I'm a fan of Spartak and Oleg Romansov brought so much glory to me, but Valeria Labanovsky achieved so much. He won the trophies uh, twice at his spell at Dynamo Kiev, and that was his first one. He uh, he <clears throat> he brought the European success, and um, I was able to find this game on uh, on YouTube, and this game is available for, for in full with Russian modern commentaries. And I was very impressed the football they played. Mm. They played almost modern football. You can see, and um, Dynamo Kiev was always known for an amazing, unbelievable physical conditions. They were just unbelievable. They were so strong. They were so fast. Back, especially in the 80s. Like, even right now, it looks like fairly modern football. A little bit slow, but still, like, you can see the speed. You can see the aggression. But back then, it was just unbelievable. That was the next level of um, of football back then. And uh, the lineup is just unbelievable. Yeah. You have a very experienced Oleg Blahin, Bilanov, Zavarov. Yakovinka, Ratz, all those players, um, legends of Dynamo Kiev, and um, that was a great side. Three nothing victory uh, at the Stade de Gerlian in Lyon uh, with goals by Zavarov, Blahina, Yevtushenko. Oh, you have to actually. Do you know how strong the side was, Tim? They had Alexei Mikhailchenko on the bench. That's, exactly. That's, exactly. How, that's how strong that side was. This this Dynamo side was, oh, you know, I mean, Oleg Blochin, for example. Um, he won the Ballon d'Or, right? When the back when mm -hmm. the Ballon d'Or actually still mattered, when it wasn't just a contest won by two players. And <laughs> I, I, Alexander Savarov, who went to Juventus Turin shortly after for $4 million at the time, and I believe it was in 1987. And that's a lot of money. You know, he was yeah. one of the first Soviet players to be allowed to move abroad. Um, Mikhailchenko, of course, he went to Sampdoria Genoa later on. Oli Blochin, he, that was already towards the end of his career. So he did, he mm. went to Austria, I think, to play for a couple of years there. Igor Belanov, he went to Gladbach. Belanov. Yeah, he went yeah. to Gladbach. Um, didn't work out so well in Gladbach for him, but still a fantastic player. And, um, I think the other really big legacy, and you already mentioned it, is Lubanovsky. And I mean, look, we get Lubanovsky two more times on this podcast. That's how big of an impact he had. And he exactly. invented modern football in that time. You know, you, you look at people like Louis van Gaal. The total football, um, that was his idea. He was the first coach in modern football to use computers to track his players. And no one else in the world did that. Lubanovsky did. Um, and of course, Lubanovsky was very lucky because he had the unlimited resources of the Ukrainian state ministry, uh, the, not state ministry, ministry of interior behind him because the 
president of Ukraine, the Soviet Republic of Ukraine, was of course the biggest fan of the club. So he had unlimited resources. But still, it's it's incredible when you look at the side and the work that Lobanovsky had done. And I think this was maybe one of the first modern clubs in European football, wasn't it? Absolutely, and the, he he changed the history of the the whole coaching. Like you said, lots of modern players still refer to him. <clears throat> I listen to different lots of podcasts about football, and people never refer to any other Soviet coach. They if they talk about Soviet coaches, they always use Valery Lobanovsky as like the the top uh, example. And uh, the, even you say he had unlimited resources, and that's true. Yeah. Um, now it's it still was like fairly everything what he was doing. It was different. It was unique. It was new idea. Yes, and um, you know, like it, it's the results. It was proven with results. They were the best side in Soviet football. Um, historically, they are. Uh, they won uh, the most number of European trophies by Soviet clubs, and uh, it's all his success and a sustained success over a long time, as we will find out. You know, as we move through this podcast, because he had another golden era towards the nineties. But yeah, Tim, sadly, we, we need to move on a little bit because we got the next game. And this is actually a fantastic story as well. Barcelona against CSKA Moscow in the second leg of the year of the Champions League qualification stage. Now, this is, we have to, we have to kind of go back a little bit and explain because back in 1992, this was the inaugural competition of the Champions League. There were only two groups and teams had to play in to get into these two groups. So there was only actually eight teams competing. And the group stage, and the group stage was actually in the spring, not in the fall. So this game actually happened almost 25 years ago, Tim. And yeah. by Moscow, and we're talking about a Soviet Union that has just collapsed. So this was a really difficult time for the country, right? And Tseska uh, Moscow took out the biggest fish in the pond with Barcelona, because this was an amazing Barcelona side. When you look at some of the players that in, were in this Barcelona side, they did not go to the UEFA Champions League group stage because CSKA Moscow, this team from from now independent Russia, took them out. Yeah, that was the first uh, proper year of uh, 1992. That was the pr- first uh, Russian League tr- uh, champion. Not, and this is when I actually started paying as a um, paying attention to Russian football because I had the access and it was uh, easier to do that. Uh, but <clears throat> the uh, they got to the Champions League back on winning the last ever Soviet uh, championship in the 91 side, which was led uh, by Pavel Sadirin, I believe. Am I correct? I think it was Pavel Sadirin. Yeah. And uh, they back on that, they, they played in the Champions League. And the game was unbelievable because they were 2 nothing down. And then they created a great comeback with goals by Evgeny Bushmanov, who now is coaching the U. 21 Russian side, I believe, uh, Denis Mashkarin and uh, Dmitry Karsakov. Uh, so those, it, it, I remember as a kid, I didn't, I didn't get a chance to see this, this game as a kid. I don't know why. Maybe it was too late and I had to go to school. Maybe it wasn't broadcasted. I'm not sure back then how it was. But I remember when in the morning I bought every day the newspaper called Sport Express. Mm. That was just the big, big, big headline how legendary that was victory. And that was like probably my first um, success of Russian football in Europe for me, which I remember as a kid. And I remember that front page and I don't remember what it said, but it was something like legendary, unbelievable comeback and uh, they praised CSKA. Actually, Tim, it's funny that you say that because we actually have an article on Football Grad called The Soldier's Tango, a homage to CSKA Moscow and Catalonia. And uh, the picture that we use 
for the title image is actually that headline from Sport Express. Oh, let me take a look. Yeah. Oh, this is great. I am a... <laughs> so, oh, 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 I'm seven years old. How old I was? I see it. This is great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And Spartak. Oh, yeah. Beautiful. Wow. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a really good story. It's one of my favorite uh, post-Soviet stories. I actually stumbled across the story when I did my PhD research. And... Um, it did not quite fit into my PhD dissertation. So this was actually one of the first articles I've ever written for Football Grad all the way back, I believe, in 2013. And uh, it's it's such a great story, This this the fact that they got through and this Barca side with Pep Guardiola, Ronald Koeman, Miguel Nadal, Histus Deutschkopf, Michael Laudrup, uh, Eto Bergistran, you know, all these guys. and uh, Managed by Jorge Cruyff. Yeah. Oh, sorry, jo- jo- Johan Cruyff. Sorry. Yeah, Johan Cruyff. And there comes plucky little CSKA, all the best players sell to the West, and they still go through, and that's just unbelievable. It's such such a fantastic story. The aftermath yeah. is a bit sad, right? Because they weren't able to play any of the group stage matches in Russia because of the bad conditions of the stadiums. And um, that's maybe that was maybe something that kind of gives it a little bit of a sad ending. Yeah, it does. Uh, can I just uh, say one thing, which is really funny to me? Uh, in in today's modern world, when uh, we have Twitter and like we have instant reaction, so mm-hmm. the 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 newspaper I'm looking at it's from uh, November six, yeah, Friday, and the game was on November fourth, Wednesday. So it took them two days to to put the result on the first page of the paper so this result was two days dated just imagine a modern newspaper in germany doing that two days later it will be just unbelievable well tim the crazy thing is so when i did my research i had to go through every single sport express newspaper right to to look for stories and so i've seen them all i literally seen them all and uh sometimes issues were missing in in that period, especially in 1992. And I thought it was because they didn't print it every day, but it's because they had shortage. Sometimes they weren't able to print, right? So some days there was just no paper because there was no way to print it. And this is is because of the collapse of the Soviet Union, right? So I I don't know exactly with this particular story there, but it's actually possible. People had to wait (laughs) an entire day because the paper could not be printed on, on that Thursday morning. Right, because there was shortage, and that's just yeah. like, when you think back about this. This is twenty five years ago. It's yeah. it's just it's mind boggling, right? Uh, <laughs> that this team managed to do this, and yeah, uh, I, 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 that's that's why this is in so many ways. There's so much there, um, so much to cover, and I mean the soldiers' tango. I think it still remains one of the top read read articles on football grad because it is such a great story. It, it is, it is. I'm just looking at those pictures. Yeah, just to the listeners, check it out. It's, uh, yeah, the, the Soldier's Tango on Football Grat. It's, it's a great article. I'm just uh, looking at those pictures. That was the, um, it's 25, like it doesn't seem that 25 years ago we had such a different life, but it looks like it was completely different. Yeah, it is. It's bizarre. I mean, this is, this is, whenever I look back, and I mean, we, we're going to look at a couple more games from from the 90s, right? And it seems in so many ways such a long time ago because the competitions were different too. Games, teams met each other more on an eye level from different countries, right? A team, an unknown team from Russia could beat one of the big teams because they were unknown. People didn't know what they were going to expect. And I think that's, that's also something that we reminiscent about sometimes maybe in football that these fairy tale stories didn't, 
they're harder to find. We have a couple more on this pod, but they're harder to find, and that's something maybe a little sad. Maybe to to draw a conclusion on this um, on this particular story, you know how there's eight stars in the Champions League logo? It's actually yeah. the original eight group stage teams in oh. in the Champions League. So one of those stars is CSKA. Fitting, they're Red Army. I I oh. I figure a star is what they deserve after doing this. Uh, it's a it's a great story, little tip. And star is their logo because they yeah. army club, so it kind of makes sense. It's it's really cool. It's really cool. But yeah, Tim, we're moving on to a game that involved your side, and uh, this was not a final. This was not a super decisive game either, but it was a big game in many ways um, because this was Dynamo Kiev against Spartak Moscow in 1994, group stage of the UEFA Champions League. Why we think this is significant is because this was the first time those two big rivals, the biggest rivals back in the Soviet Union, met each other after the Soviet Union had collapsed. It wouldn't be the holiday season if there wasn't candy, right? Celebrate the holiday season with the Holiday Crush. They've sprinkled candy with a holiday theme and fun-packed challenges every week for five whole weeks, finishing on January 4th. The more challenges you complete, the better your chances of unwrapping delicious rewards. So, are you ready to crush the holidays? Play the Holiday Crush now. Download it from the App Store, Google Play, or Windows Store for free. Terms and conditions apply. Yeah, and Spartak was, uh, they were favorites uh, back then because uh, we had something called Kubak Sadruzhstva. This is a tournament which was played uh, mm-hmm. in Russia, usually in Moscow, in the, in the, um, how, how, how do they call those, like in the covered stadiums? Uh, not indoor, a very good indoor one. Stadiums. In, yeah. Indoor stadiums. Indoor stadiums, yeah. It was a tournament which was usually happened, I think, in January, February. Mm-hmm. And Spartak always won it by the ma- massive, massive margin. They just, they had like scores like, I think one time it was 18 nothing. They played for versus an Azerbaijani team, something like that. But so Spartak came as a massive, massive um, leader uh, and uh, for, to this game. But uh, Dynamo Kiev, I remember watching. I watched this game as a kid, and I already was following Spartak back then. And uh, Dynamo Kiev just made a um, legendary ca- comeback, and the whole I think it was nearly hundred thousand like or so. Uh, the full stadium was um, just going nuts because. The first half was won by Spartak 2-0, and Spartak pretty much had the game. But then Dynamo Kiev just came back and won the game 3-2. And I remember that, and it was so deserved. They were better in the second half, and it just like was an example that the game is played 90 minutes, not 45. Yeah, I think there's, but there's a lot more in there too, right? Because like when, Tim, when you look back at the Soviet Union, those two teams did not like each other at all. No. No. I mean, this is, and then of course when Spartak and all their fans went there, there was a bit of trouble in Kiev. Um, we have to mention too that Spartak did win the return game, and that was that was a big match as well. So we don't want to just say what well, Dynamo Kiev won this. It's, it's more than that. It's it's really that at this point the Soviet Union was gone, right? But people say, okay, well this is now a Ukrainian team against a Russian team playing each other. But at this point the Soviet Union was only gone for two years. Yeah, it was kind of. <laughs> Yeah, it wasn't. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't something new because they played like four years before that, and it yeah. wasn't. Uh, it it wasn't something new, but it was still a little bit. And uh, you know, it's it, it was different, differently, de- different feel 
than it was now because right now we have this unfortunate situation that there's like a political issue obviously back then it was two different countries and the soviet union broke up but people were still united in terms of like there was no difference between russian people and ukrainian people we were all soviet people i was born in soviet union and to me ukrainians people were always part of my country so that feel was there so it was more it there was a little bit of political feel but it was more a rivalry between clubs if right now the clubs would have played right now today it would have been way more political than back then and less uh rivalry than back then Yeah, that's a very good point. I think that is something that we have to remember. I think the only thing that Ukrainians didn't like or were complaining about is the fact that when, when the two countries became independent entities, um, Russia kept all the coefficient points, right? And went to the, the World Cup in 1994 because they were a higher ranked team than Ukraine. And the, the, the Russian Premier League kept all the, the coefficient points from the, Uh, Soviet Vishaya Liga. So the Ukrainian teams had to start from the bottom. So it took them a little bit of time to get back into that European fold. That said, two years doesn't seem like a long time either. Um, so there was a bit of that, but I, I think, and this is, I think this is something when you, when you go back, this was mostly about the club rivalry, about these yes. two big Soviet teams, the two teams that in the Soviet Union won the most amount of trophies. You know, the one team that was supported by the Ministry of Interior and the other team that was the People's Club. And I'm talking about Dynamo and Spartak, of course, going at each other. And this, this was maybe the last time that, you know, where you saw those two teams compete on that. And it was basically just mostly about the sporting aspects and nothing else. Exactly. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, yeah, this is exactly how it was. And um, yeah, still the rivalry. And it was unfortunate for for me as a Spartak fan that we lost the first one. It was a ridiculous comeback. And <laughs> yeah, we lost. <laughs> yeah, but you won the return, so it's all good. <laughs> yeah, the one, the, the return was so cold. I remember that game again, watching it was so cold. It wasn't the proper foot, football game. It was like one of those like snow games. It wasn't very beautiful, but uh, this, I don't think like that the return victory wasn't as legendary as this match because this was yeah. the first one yeah. and it included the massive comeback. Yeah, I think that's really, that's really the big point. This was the first one, right? Um, I think this is the nobody first... remembers the second. Game. Yeah, no one does. So that's that. But this is also such a good game, and I guess it was an early an early fall, so it wasn't too cold. So yeah, yeah there's a, there's a lot to it. But ah, you know, it's still still a magnificent game, and still something that we should remember. But Tim, going from a negative experience for your side, yes. we're going to a positive one, and this is the Ajax Spartak Moscow. Uh, the two sides met each other in the UEFA Cup, and this is still the Ajax side that. You know, dazzled all of Europe. Remember in 1995 and in 1996, the team Ajax reached the Champions League final. They won it in 1995. They narrowly lost to Juventus Turin in 1996. So this was still a magnificent Ajax team. Um, I remember Ajax struggled a little bit in that year because they had just moved to the new Amsterdam Arena and there was a long time where Ajax sort of said, well, this new stadium is cursed. It took them some time to get really used to that new facility. But I mean, I'm, I'm looking at the Ajax team sheet right in front of me and I'm seeing Edwin van der Sar, Danny Blind, the De Boer brothers, Michael Laudrup, Sunday Olise. Oh my word, Sunday Olise. <laughs> Shota Avelace. You remember Shota Avelace? Yeah. And then we had on the bench, we had Benny McCarty. Ah, uh, man. Richard Witschke was in this team too. I don't even know where to stop. But Spartak won this game and... You know, there were some great Spartak players in this too. Um, the one that, of course, pops out right there 
Jego Titov. Oh, this this is this was football at its height. You know, this was the '90s. This was when football was still amazing. Well, yeah, I can talk about this game forever. How long we have? We don't have that uh, that much time. Uh, <laughs> but uh, just for the listeners, uh, when we were picking those ten games, uh, I had I was offered so many Spartak games, and Mano told me, "Listen, there's some other clubs in the post-Soviet era. Can we? You have only one game to pick." And I picked this game because I remember that match, and um, the game was shown. Um, the day later, so I already, uh, somebody spoiled me the result in school. Somebody came up to me and said, did you see the Sport Express newspaper? Spartak won away and in oh. Ajax uh, away. And I was going to watch this game with my dad later because the game was shown uh, next night. And I called my dad and I said, listen, we have to watch this together. He's like, yeah, we're watching. And I was like, listen, unfortunately, I know the result, but I'm not going to spoil it to you. I'll, I'll let you uh, enjoy the game. And I obviously, I just knew the result. I didn't read the whole article. I didn't know even the score. And I was watching the game. And then um, I saw that. And that was probably my favorite game because um, for, for uh, the listeners of this podcast know very well because we talk about it all the time, this massive long break. Uh, between between the winter part of the tournament and the summer part of the tournament, it's very very long, a few months. And when the teams are coming back from that uh, break, we don't we never know what to explain uh, to do what to expect because mm-hmm. Europeans clubs are already in the good form. They are playing in that top form, and this is, that was the first Spartak game of that season, and we didn't know what to exp- uh, to what to expect. And they came back with the away victory of the. Um, against this beautiful Ajax side. And um, my favorite, this is my favorite Spartak goal ever, is the last goal where Valery Kechinov put it past uh, Edwin van der Sound. It's such a cool and wonderful and uh, amazing way. It was a great um, passing combination. And then uh, Valery Kechinov was kind of on the right side. And he, instead of just passing or shooting, he, he put it in the closest corner and he made the real fool of uh, Van der Sar. And it was just, it was, it was just such a icing on the, came, uh, on, on the cake after great performance, that final goal, which pretty much put a nail in the coffin of that uh, tie. Even there was still a, a game at home, but 3-1 three away, three and away, it was beautiful. Okay, talk something about it because I can talk unlimited. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you know. I, I, the one thing that sticks out to me is just the the fact that you were able to um, see it. You know, be after, you after, you already knew the result when you watched it, and uh, listeners don't know this, but we actually Tim goes offline, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> there's a big announcement in either our Slack or WhatsApp chat that Tim is now offline because he hasn't seen any of the games. <laughs> and he doesn't want us to spoil the results. And, you know, um, we cover a lot of games on, on the Football Ground Network. So you get this, we get this, we get to talk about a lot of games. And Tim watches just as many games as I do. So I'm just, I'm imagining t- little Tim at the, the, the schoolyard and getting told the result. And you must have been just absolutely furious because I just kind of can see your face just be like, no. I want yeah. to see this later. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, ex- this is exactly how it was. And just to under for the listeners, uh, to just to make sure that I'm not crazy. I'm a little bit, but not completely crazy. Is because I live in Canada, where uh, where the football games from Europe are shown around 4 a.m. or 6 a.m. or sometimes 7 a.m. So I I don't really wake up at 4 a.m. to watch football. So I wake up later and watch the games later. So I, that's why I try to avoid uh, the results. But um, yeah, but back then it was really just somebody ran up to me and said, Spartak won. I was like, fuck. 
thank you very much. <laughs> so I was happy, obviously, but um, but yeah, but then I watched the game, and I still watched it a couple times after, uh, a little bit more adult, and that's still one of the most significant European uh, games for me as a kid. And that goal, listener, oh, listeners, please go on YouTube and watch that final three-one goal by Valery Kechenov. It's it's just it just shows uh, the beauty of the game. How far did Sparta go in that year? Uh, semi-final. Semi-final. We won. We won uh, over your friends Karlsruhe on an absolutely horrible pitch in uh, round of 16. Then it was Ajax. It was a quarterfinal. And then we played against Inter Milan, that legendary side with Ronaldo, who ended up winning the trophy. And we lost um, pretty much uh, to Ronaldo um, on that. That's right, because Inter Milan had really wanted to win the trophy because the year before they lost to Schalke in that yeah. final. That's when Dortmund and yeah. Schalke each won a European trophy. Uh, just trying to like get get my football radar going here, but yeah. Before before we start talking too much about that, I I think we, sadly we have to move on. And this is this is a game I can talk about uh, forever, <laughs> Tim. This is and this we have to we have to put this into. I I said a aggregate, but it really is just the first leg that was absolutely yeah. insane. And this is Bayern versus Dynamo. This is the 1998-1999 Champions League semi-final first leg at the Olympiski, and this is the old Olympiski, of course. Uh, I'm talking massive concrete ball, ball really cold. Um, Eighty thousand fans were fitting into the stadium, and this this is really why we said earlier on Lubanovsky that that he was such a great manager, right? Lubanovsky was still the head oh, again the head coach. He took some off time, I think, believe he was at the UAA for some time when the Soviet Union collapsed and. He came back and then basically built this new Dynamo side. And I'm saying new Dynamo side because this Dynamo side, I mean, this was this, this, this was Shevchenko's Dynamo side, right? But also Reprov and Shovkovsky. And they played the football from a different planet. I remember those white jerseys. Um, everyone <laughs> talks about the white ballet with, uh, with Real Madrid. I forget Real. These, these guys, they were playing football, 21st century football before anyone else was doing it. And they were meeting a Bayern Munich side that was very much at the side too. I mean, we, we look at Stefan Effenberg was on the side, Oliver Kahn, uh, Janka, Tarnat, I mean, uh, Giovanni Elba. Um, this is a long list. And these two teams were, were meeting each other to play football. And I remember when they got this draw, Bayern weren't too happy about it because going to Ukraine in April... Um, can be a tricky one, and they went down by two goals real quickly. Um, both times, Shevchenko scored, and then Tarnat got that important away goal uh, in the 45th minute, and then uh, Kosovsky made it made it three one. And at this point, people were saying, "Well, this isn't a great result for Bayern; they're not going to go through." And then Effenberg scored in the 78th, and then everyone's like, "Oh, this is a fantastic result for Bayern, right? Because of the the way the home and away works." And then Karsten Janke in the 90th minute <laughs> made it 3-3. And that, this was a massive shock for Ukrainians because they thought, well, we had them, right? We had those Bayern guys. And then uh, Bayern, of course, sealed it at home with a 1-0 victory. But the, this is, this, the, the, the second leg almost doesn't stick out because Bayern just got the job done at home, right? And they just did what Bayern does. But, Tim, this was the moment when I fell in love with post-Soviet football. And it, it was this fascination with this... Dynamo side, this Dynamo Kiev side. It's not, I'm not saying I'm a Dynamo Kiev fan. I just thought it was fascinating how this team from this post-Soviet state that when you are a teenager growing up in Germany, you don't know that much about, right? 
and how they built this football where every player was perfect. They were like machines that could play perfect football. And that was something that was very difficult to comprehend for a boy growing up in Germany. And I remember also the other thing, this this big concrete ball that, you know, that <laughs> massive Olympiski Stadium, like so big. And I remember going there a few years later and it was still the old stadium. It was, this thing was huge. You know, it was just enormous and it, it was so loud and it was like just bouncing up and down. And um, this was, this was, you know, this was maybe the last moment in modern day football where you could take a team and you can just get a whole bunch of local lads and create a special team out of it and go all the way to the semifinal of the UEFA Champions League. I, I think that is maybe the last time this. Yeah, it was it was great in Amasite again, led by uh, Labanovsky. Uh, yeah, the, the, you look at the lineups, how many players from that uh, lineup just ended up playing in in Europe. Shevchenko, Rybrov, Kaladze, Luzhny played, and obviously like Alexander Shakovsky just finished his career recently. What a legendary, uh, um, just just legendary side. Um, I watched the um, Andrea. You're right. It, those like back. This is all Ukrainian players. There's, they didn't have any people like playing from South, South America, from, from Europe, from no, it was all Ukrainians. Yes, Dynamo Kiev again had the resources to, to get uh, some of the best players from all over Ukraine and um, even some from Russia. But still, it was all, like you said, it was all local people. And it was uh, a side which was put together by Lovanovsky again. And again, for the second time, reached a very, very significant um, result. Um, about just, I watched the highlights of that game. And to be quite honest, Mano, like, Dynamo Kiev had so many chances. Mm-hmm. The 3-3 result is just what German does. Like, nobody else would have done it and 3-3 besides the German side. Like, they were just so much better in terms of, like, I just searched how many highlights you can see Dynamo Kiev. Dynamo Kiev easily could have scored five or six. They just, they, they didn't. Yeah. There was like an open goal miss from like a meter, and um, but uh, yeah, band did what they do. They just showed this legendary comeback. It didn't turn out as a legendary comeback in the final, but that's a mm-hmm. little bit different different game. But uh, inter- a very very interesting game, and this is the Dynamo maybe at their peak, yeah. uh, but st- still the the side which was definitely one of the best clubs in Europe. A post-Soviet side, Ukrainian side, which was definitely one of the best clubs in Europe and played in the semi-final of Champions League. Just think about it, like, semi-final of Champions League. And then, of course, the the typical thing happened, and maybe that was another, you know, root cause of the many problems we have with modern European football these days, is the side was dismantled afterwards. You know, Shevchenko went to Milan for, I believe, $26 million at the time. Kalatze went to the West, Reprov went to the West, Shovkovsky stayed, but you know, that, that's already the heart and soul, soul of the team just ripped out. And yeah. Dynamo were never this, never really that the same. I mean, they came close once, and we'll talk about that in a moment of reaching, um, a final of a European competition again, but never again, you know, on this Champions League stage nowadays, you know, they, they might as well, um, might as well be from a different planet. The the gap between teams like Dynamo and teams from Western Europe is just so massive, which is sad. I, I personally find it sad. I think it's amazing that back in the nineties you could build a team like that and you can re- could reach the stars. So yeah, it's um sadly a different era. But you know, Tim, we have to move on to that era, to what I actually think was already the next era. And this was the 
Sporting versus CSKA Moscow, UEFA Cup Final in 2005 in Lisbon, of all places. And CSKA <laughs> Moscow won this game. And I believe Sporting were even ahead um, during this game and still, you know, didn't get the job done. Um, this, this was the start of a new era because all of a sudden there was this CSKA side, you know, sponsored by Sipnev, involvement by Roman Abramovich, rumored, Gazayev the coach, um, all these stars from abroad signed, just to, just to name a few, Cavallo and Wagner Love, for example, right? This, this was the start of a modern Russian era in a way. And uh, we're probably through that era now, but that's, this was the start of the oligarchs in Russian football. Exactly, yeah, absolutely right. This is if we take a look at uh, we just uh, a few minutes ago we talked about Ceska side which won Barcelona in 1992. Uh, this is 17 years later, and that's completely different club in the completely different financial structure, uh, completely different uh, status in Russian football. Back then, Ceska was one of the best, if not the best club in Russia, and uh, this is the Neginer, uh, their president, who is still the president of that day. That was early era when he bought the club. Um, you can see we just spoke about Dynamo Kiev, which was uh, fully um, had had fully, it was just Ukrainians and Russian players. This side had uh, players like Chidiodia from Nigeria, Rahimic, you have Brazilians, Kalvalia and Wagner Love. And um, uh, people still saying that that season by Daniel Carvalho was maybe the best season ever played um, by a foreign player in Russia. Like he was just uh, on the way to that final, he did magical things and um, unfortunately he didn't really stick at that level, but that season was just him and Wagner Love. They were pretty much the, the whole team worked hard for that. And we still have Igor Ignashevich, uh, sorry, uh, Akinfeyev, Berezutsky brothers and Ignashevich in that squad who play in the, in the squad to this day. But that side was really, the cup was won by Daniel Carvanya and Wagner Love and their beautiful performance. No, I mean, against the side in Sporting Lisbon, that just was pretty unbelievable as well. I mean, when you look at this, the, the lineup, uh, you know, Juan Martino, Ricardo Sapinto, Lidson, Rodrigo Telo, uh, Sipeto, Ricardo. Oh, my word. These, these were good players. And this game was, of course, in, in their home stadium. And I believe it was in the year before that Portugal also lost the final. In Portugal, the European Cup, the European Championship final as well, right? So it was a bit of drama for the Portuguese side. And uh, that kind of added to, to the storyline. But also, I mean, the storyline was all the, the things that were going on in CSGA's background with all the money that was all of a sudden being poured into Russian football. All of a sudden, money didn't seem to matter anymore. And I remember, you know, you know how people talk about Chinese football now and how. Yeah how much money there is in Chinese football. In 2005, when CSKA won the European Cup, uh, the, the UEFA Cup, there was talk, it will only be a matter of time until a side like CSKA will win the Champions League, that the Champions League will go to the post-Soviet space because of all the oligarchs, right? And it's kind of funny how that didn't quite turn out that way. But, I mean, we can stick in this era because the next game pretty much confirms that kind of storyline right this is Tanit versus Glasgow Rangers in 2008 and uh, the final was in Manchester the UEFA Cup final and Tanit won this game pretty convincingly 2-0 and again you know it plays into the storyline here are the teams from the post-Soviet space with a lot of money in this case it was Gazprom that were just pouring 
cash into the side. And remember, this Zenit side beat Bayern Munich at home 4-0 at the Petrovsky Stadium. You know, and this was the Bayern Munich side that was considered favorites to win this tournament because Bayern Munich, of course, crashed out. Um, they had a poor season the year prior in the Bundesliga and we had, therefore had to play in the Europa League or the Cup, the cup of Losers, as they call it in Munich. <laughs> and um, they were absolutely destroyed by the Sinit side. And that, was, that played into this, this whole story. Like, here are the Russian clubs with all this money and they're going to dominate European football. And this really much played into this, didn't it? Yeah, absolutely. That that was then also kind of similar to that, um, let's say, Sky stage when just the Gazprom started pouring money. So that was very, very beginning. They won the league and to them it also was like the first uh, trophy since winning the only Soviet uh, championship in 1984. So that was for, for them a, like the biggest success first winning the league and then follow up it with the with the victory of uh, of the OEFA cup and um again you look at the side you you still have those players but that was like when andrea shavin really started being the player who he, he was and he was one of the creators of that victory um so yeah good good uh, that that way on the on the the way to the final was very very dramatic because they they had they almost went out um Marseille because they were losing three nothing and on the very very last minute um it was away uh Arshavin put a goal which really really helped them so they it it was very very dramatic way onto the to the final and then obviously winning against uh Bayern Munich that was legendary for for St Petersburg but it just shows um how dramatic it was and how important that victory was for 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 for, for Zenit St. Petersburg. Yeah, very good squad. Um, lots of good players. Congrats to Zenit. Yeah, I mean, you look at the teams that Zenit took out on the route to this final. Villarreal, Marseille, Bayer Leverkusen and Bayern Munich. Mm-hmm. That's some big teams. Yeah. I mean, I spend a lot of time in St. Petersburg because of the work, work with Football Grad that we do there and um, they're very proud of the trophy, and this, this is, I mean, this is when you look at the the side and you look at what happened to some of these players afterwards. You know, this this was one of the big Zenit sides, and this is be, of course before they bought Witzel and Hulk, right? That was, I believe, two years after. Um, you look at Andrea Schaben, who you of course mentioned, he went to um, went to Arsenal, London, but then there's also uh, Anatoly Timoschuk. We went to Bayern Munich and won the Champions League with Bayern Munich. I believe he's the the only Ukrainian player, won, or the only the second Ukrainian player after Andrei Shevchenko to win the Champions League with a non-Ukrainian or win any European trophy with a non-Ukrainian team, right? So this was this was a fascinating side, and um, maybe the also the the last original maybe Zenit side because there weren't too many foreign superstars in this team. Um, but at the same time, you know, a lot of very good local lads. And um, it's it's also interesting. You look at that and then you see a few years later, the Gazprom money came really pouring in. And this team changed dramatically. Yeah, yeah. Like, obviously, like, this was the period. Like, the first um, Zenit side, which kind of... Uh, drew drew attention. It was um, Vladimir uh, the Peter Lastin Petrzela side, who really uh, found uh, young lads. It was Kirjakov, Arshavin, they all very Denisov. All those players were very young, and it was a very exciting side. Uh, and uh, they were they played 
very, very good, very attacking, beautiful football. And then Gazprom came in and started slowly putting money in. So they became um, really strong on the local level. And this is when they won the, uh, the str- this trophy. And then really the money came in when they started buying Hulks, Hulks and Witzels for 40 or 60 millions. And um, that was probably, again, like the, the then, back then, this is, was like on the way um, that was the start of the way when Zenit became a club it is right now. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I think Zenit are probably the likeliest to reproduce a story like this in the near future simply because of the resources that they have now. Um, the other team that could do something like this is the team that we want to talk about next. And this is uh, the the following season, the Euro UEFA Cup or Europa League final um, between Schachter Donetsk and Werder Bremen. And Schachter Donetsk um, the emerging powerhouse of post-Soviet football in that era and one of the teams that have pretty much established themselves in that in that level. They are, of course, right now the only post-Soviet team remaining in the UEFA Champions League this season, right? Um, and a lot of the foundation, of course, they're, they're no, right now not able to play at the Donbass Arena because of the war in eastern Ukraine. But a lot of the foundation of what we see with Shakhtar Donetsk today happened in 2009 when they beat Werder Bremen in that final, didn't it, Tim? Yeah, that was uh, that was a wonderful Shakhtar side. If you look at the squad, it is unbelievable. They have Fernandinho, mm. Vilian, Luis Adriano, who now plays for Spartak, and um, then obviously Dmitry Chigrinsky, who ended up playing in, in Barcelona for, for one year. Uh, you still have the Mircea Lucescu the, as a manager, uh, Dario Snares as the, as the captain of the side. So it's it was a very, very strong Shakhtar Donetsk side. And like you said, that was when they were maybe at their peak mm. of or maybe the beginning of their peak. I would say uh, beginning but, of the peak, yeah. Uh, yeah, but see, you still, they still, this is when they were developing that play that back in defense they had ukrainians and um, um eastern europe players yeah. and the attack was straight brazilians and that was how shakhtar play, played still plays still plays to this day right yeah pretty much i mean it's you you just replace all the brazilians but uh i mean you look at you look at some of the brazilians you mentioned william he's now at chelsea fernandinho is at uh, i believe he's at manchester city now right um, yeah, pretty significant player too. Luis Adriano is with Spartak. Judson, he went to play in Milan. Yeah, yeah, he played play Milan. Uh, I, Judson is back in Corinthians, but you know he 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 was a magnificent player. Uh, Ilzinho he is uh, actually playing, and uh, you know Tim, we should actually nail him down for an interview when he's when he's coming <laughs> with the Philadelphia Union. Uh, just keeping that That's in good. the back of my head. Uh, they had a guy like Marcel Moreno on the bench, Lucky on the bench. Um, you know, this this was a good side, but they were playing. They were playing no pushovers. You know, you look at this Werder Bremen side: uh, Claudio Pizarro on attack, Mesut Özil. Yeah, that Mesut Özil was playing in that final World Cup winning Mesut Özil. Naldo in defense. Oh, he's still in the Bundesliga. It's just <laughs> fantastic player. Uh, Torsten Frings. Yeah, yeah. Tim Wiese before he became a professional wrestler. <laughs> um, you know, this was this was a fantastic side. This this game was, you know, such. Two, I remember watching this game. There were two such great sides on this field, and Werder was maybe a little unlucky because Diego, their playmaker, was uh, wasn't available for this match because he received the second yellow card. 
in the semifinal against Hamburg, right? And this, yeah. this is the other, this is the other interesting storyline because both teams to get to this final had to eliminate their biggest rival. Uh, yeah. Werder Bremen eliminated Hamburg and Schachter Donetsk eliminated Dynamo Kiev. And <laughs> this is, this is such a fantastic story, right? Because you have this German team and this Ukrainian team and they basically just basically to get to the final had to already get rid of their most difficult opponent to play a derby game. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's just, I mean, that the storyline leading up to this. In Schachter Donetsk, uh, there's actually a great documentary about this, uh, called The Other Chelsea, a story from Donetsk about this inner Ukrainian conflict between Kiev and Donetsk and some of the divisions that existed in the country already in 2009. And when, you know, when you watch this now, when you backwatch it and some of the things that happened around the Dynamo Kiev Schachter game and you look at the country today, you, a lot of things make sense, you know, in retrospect. Eight years later, you realize, oh, this, this was not a healthy place. And, um, this game, you know, Schachter getting to this final and winning the trophy. And you often, you know, when they, when they, when they showed the trophy in the, in Donetsk, they're saying this trophy was won for the miners, right? For the Schachter. And, um, that's, that's a very strong undertone and it shows some of the divisions that the country had even already then. It was such a great moment for Ukrainian football, but it also showed a lot of the divisions, didn't it, Tim? Yeah, I watched that, uh, yesterday. I didn't finish the whole thing, but, uh, but yeah, I watched half of it and it was really, really interesting how it shows like definitely like just the way the football was back then. Um, it is definitely, it's shown more from the political side. And then, um, of course, they're talking about the miners. That it's really interesting to see how they really go downstairs to the to the mines and they show those people and those people are Shakhtar fans. And um, you can see what this team means to the city. Mm. And unfortunately, they cannot play at home right now. But like you can see, like how much uh, there's real connection between those people who work in mines. At least like how it's shown in the movie. There's definite connection between them and the football club and those people you know they do a hard job like going every day underground and getting the, the you know doing the mining and those very very fancy footballers and but there is a connection on this love for football pride for the local for the local club and uh, yeah interesting story and yeah, Shakhtar was. This is one of the beginning when they became a really strong side and played and big role in Champions League. Yeah, definitely. Now that gets us to the last game, and I, I, I kind of I was going between this game and another game, and both times Kobe Bedeev was the man in charge. Um, I did end up going for Barcelona versus Ruben Kazan, and Ruben Kazan winning this game one-two at the Camp Nou in two thousand nine in the group stage of the Champions League. Now, the other game I had in mind uh, was, of course, Rostov's game against Bayern last season, right? Where Kurban if he wasn't officially the coach. We all know he was. <laughs> but, you know, you know, listen back to our podcast. We explain it all there. That was a tactical masterpiece by him, right? And it was such an amazing tactical masterpiece that no one in the West seemed to have learned about it because literally six years later, Bayern made the exact same mistakes to lose against Rostov. It's <laughs> um, Kurban Bedeev. And this, this is really, and I think I took this game more for tactical reasons than anything else. Is Kurban Bedeev, when you look back at this game and what he's done with this tiny little Ruben Kazan side and managed to get those three points from Camp Nou, which not a lot of teams managed to do, is he maybe one of those most undervalued coaches in European football? 
he might be. He might be undervalued in Europe because he people don't know much about him in Europe because um, they know the success. But he is fairly, uh, especially back then, he is very, very. He was very close. He didn't did he didn't do any uh, interviews really, and people didn't know much about them him as a person as a like about about him. They obviously heard about Rubin Kazani and their successes in, in like especially that game against Barcelona, but. Uh, in Russia, he's not. In Russia, he might be the, the best coach of modern uh, post-Alek Romantsev era. Uh, right now, we, we have two top coaches, um, Leonid Slutsky and um, Kurban Birdiev. Leonid Slutsky won more trophies with TSK, but Kurban Birdiev, he never really had a bad period. Uh, Slutsky had an unsuccessful um, spell with the national team. Then his Hal situation is a little bit questionable obviously he had a great time with CSKA but it wasn't that rosy it was just especially in the beginning he I think he quit he quit three or four times but the, uh, the Giner kept him so he, he had those bad spells Kurban Birdiev never he didn't have any any anti-success if he was always building 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 but he, with every club he worked and he worked only with two really in in the in the modern era it's Rostov and Rubin he achieved unbelievable results and that victory against that great Barcelona side now the it's it, we remember the side because the side had the Messi Ibrahimovic like uh, Xavi um, Daniel Alves Piquet played so it, it was the, it was that legendary Barcelona side coached by Pep Guardiola and Carban Birdiev arrived there and tactically played very defensive organized um, football but he got three points against that legendary side and this is the thing. I mean, I've seen of sides play quite a bit. I was um, spent quite a lot of time in Russia when his side Rostov finished second. You know, this was a team that didn't get salary for months, and every game, hundred percent disciplined performance, every single game. And then they did the exact same thing in the in the Champions League as well. You know, when they when they reached the Champions League, which no one thought they would reach the Champions League. Every single game, 100% disciplined, including the game against Bayern when they went down twice and still ended up winning the games 3-2. Um, it took them, it took, I think, until the round of 16 in the Europa League the, the following spring until yeah. Manchester United finally took them out, right? Um, yeah, he, he gets his teams to play this really disciplined kind of football. And I mean, when you look at this, this, this was a solid Ruben Kazan side. Um, it wasn't an all-star team. But it was a solid side. But this solid side, this solid team, won two Russian titles in a row in a league that included the big spenders of Sydney, the big spenders in Lokomotiv Moscow, the big spenders in CSKA Moscow, Spartak Moscow as well, right? And Ruben won the title two times in a row under him. And that that, that is mag magnificent. And then he goes to Barcelona and pulls out a result like this. I, I think, you know... Putting this on a scale, this is an, it, it didn't win him any trophies, but it's still a magnificent achievement. And I think this is, this is really one of those, those moments. And I think it kind of like, it kind of shows us going, going forward those seven years. The fact that he then did it with Rostov again. I like to put those two games almost in the same bracket, mm -hmm. right? Because it was, and they are, they are in the same bracket. Um, is, it shows what amazing of a coach he is and how good of tactical masterminds are. They are in, in Russian football because I think tactically it's actually one of the most interesting leagues to watch in European football and people don't see it because it's so far east. So I, I think, you know, games like Barcelona's defeat to Ruben Kazan or Bayern's defeat to Rostov show that. And I, I think that's almost 
a very good way to kind of wrap it up. Um, maybe the one question I have for you. Um, we don't, we have four teams, Russian teams in the, in the Europa League. We have one Ukrainian team in the Europa League and we have Shakhtar Donetsk in the Champions League. Do you think that we this season can maybe add a game to this list that we just created from one of those six teams that we just talked about? Well, I, I hope we could, and I think we can only add one because it was legendary Spartak victory against Sevilla 5-1. Which, but going forward, I really hope so. And I've been saying for a very long time because uh, that the Russian clubs are um, in our, our tournament for Russia is Europa League. And right now we have four best teams in Lokomotiv, CSKA, Zenit, and Spartak, who will be playing that tournament. So I think it's a really good year. I, it's a really good year for, for, for us to expect a game or a successful performance from a Russian club. It obviously depends on who we will get, and Europa League is very strong this year. But at the same time, we have four best clubs, and that's a fairly unique chance uh, for Russian football to to get a trophy. Shakhtar, they have their Champions League, so they have um, obviously a harder tournament to, to, to play. But again, maybe that game against Roma, maybe there will be a legendary victory which will bring them to a quarterfinal. So... I think we have a good chance, Manuel. Yeah, it's exciting to be continued. I think that's yeah. that's really exactly that's really what where we at. And uh, you know, if Andrew sadly could make it today, and I'm pretty sure he would have to like to contribute to this list. So I'll I'll say to be continued. We'll see what this season brings. But Tim, this concludes our podcast. We had ten great games to talk about. Where can people find you? What have you been up to? It's almost Christmas. You know, Christmas break. I guess that's really where it is at right now, right? Exactly, yeah. Like it's uh, it just in, in life and everything, everything stops for Christmas. Mm. Um, I'm glad we we did this episode. So maybe if listeners want to have uh, other ideas of us doing a romantic, nostalgic podcast about so Soviet Union, they can send us messages and they can send us obviously to our football grad. But uh, my Twitter is Russian Tim sixty one and on Instagram Rocket from Russia. Yeah, absolutely, Tim. You're absolutely right. Please. When you listen to this and you say, well, did, you should have mentioned this match or you should have talked about this match. Hey, feel free at Football Club Live. Let us know. We like to hear your thoughts and we like to hear your ideas. Anything is always welcome at Football Club Live, of course. Or you leave us, leave us a note on our iTunes uh, or on our Facebook wall or, you know, send us an email. There's lots of ways to get in touch with us. Feel free to do so. We're absolutely happy to hear your feedback. Well... On that note, I've been your host, Manuel Weff. You can find me, if you, again, if you have ideas, at Manuel Weff on Twitter. Feel free to send them to me. But yeah, almost almost done ahead of Christmas. I have one last big match tonight with their Klassiker. And then um, I'm mostly focusing on stories like this over the winter break. Longer reads, a uh, few transfer stories maybe. And then uh, we'll, we're all refreshed for the for the January season and um excited for that but yeah i've been your host man over and we'll be back probably in the new year until then merry christmas and happy new year das wird dann ja.
Imagine if you could shop the shelves of all your local liquor stores at the same time. Well, spoiler alert, you can with Drizzly, the number one alcohol delivery app. Drizzly lets you compare prices from local liquor stores on a huge selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered right to your door in under 60 minutes. And right now, Drizzly is giving all new customers $5 off their first order. Just enter promo code SAVE5 at checkout. Download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.